this is the point I think a lot of people get wrong because they raise money to launch something when in fact they should be launching the thing. Like the only people who are going to fund you to launch something will be people who know you. And what they, what they care about is the journey you're on. This is your dream. This is really important to you. And they care about you, therefore they care about the things that are important to you. But for the average person on the street, your idea to launch something is completely irrelevant. Get back to me when you're launching it. Like, that's interesting idea, mate. Can't wait to see the T-shirts. But why you'd expect me to, like, invest in this abstract idea at that early point, it doesn't make any sense. It's probably not what you, the listener, would do in most instances. It's time to draw up your battle plans, assemble your team and leech support from your nearest and dearest. This is your practical guide to starting the movements that change the world. I'm Rich Brophy and you're listening to How to Start a Riot. What's up, Riot Squad? Rich Brophy here. I'm recording this in a smoky Sydney today. And I'll tell you what, the change in the vibe of the city when the impacts of climate change are literally being shoved under your nose has been incredible to watch. It's almost the inciting incident of a doomsday film, which is, I don't know, pretty eerie. Uh, People are discussing climate change in hushed tones, which is very different from that kind of, oh, we should really do something conversation that we've heard of the past. And the response from the government has actually been a little bit underwhelming. It almost feels like it's on the rest of us to do something. And obviously that is what this show is all about, giving you the tools and the knowledge to lead and drive positive change yourself. Now, a lot of what we've focused on in the past few episodes has been around aligning people and efforts. And obviously these are super fundamental to driving social change, but once you're aligned and engaged, uh, you may find yourself requiring resources that you can't come up with on your own. Maybe you've got a pivotal project that will draw new supporters or press. Uh, maybe you want to scale your network across the nation or around the world. Uh, or maybe your activism has taken the shape of a social enterprise and you need capital to get things up and running. Well, good news, folks. You can stop squeezing the parentals or pinning your hopes on a $2 scratchy because today I'm sitting down with Tom Dawkins, the CEO and co-founder of Start Some Good, a cause-driven crowdfunding platform dedicated to helping socially impactful projects get funded and move forwards. Now, I had the chance to watch Tom talk to a mass of budding change makers and explain the world of social enterprise and crowdfunding. And I tell you what, he's as keen a bean as you are likely to meet. He's passionate, articulate, and I'd hazard Australia's leading authority on attracting funding for social change. I'm super stoked to have him with us here today. Tom, welcome to How to Start a Riot. So good to be here. Thanks for having me. Mate, obviously I know a lot about you, but I'd love you to give our listeners a little bit of an overview of who you are. Yeah, for sure. So I'm a, you know, I'm a 40-year-old guy in Sydney who cares a lot about the future. And I've always been a starter-upper of things, you know, right from high school, university. By the time I'd finished university, I'd founded three not-for-profits. And all of those were focused on how you, you know, how, how we could better engage young people, my peers, in kind of democratic participation and change making, how how people could contribute to the, the future that they wanted to see for their community. Um, and so that put me in the trenches of fundraising a lot, you know, in order to actually exactly the scenario that you, that you were painting uh, just a moment ago in the intro, you know, that we had great ideas and we'd done as much as we could do with just pure, you know, determination and sweat equity. And there reached a moment when if we wanted to continue our impact or increase our impact, we need to get some money from somewhere. 
Um, and so I spent kind of eight years relentlessly fundraising for that. Um, and it was really hard. But I didn't, I didn't really have any context to the hardness. You know, I only had this kind of sample size of one. And it was only when I then spent four years in the US and particularly two years in San Francisco that I began to understand what, 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 what a kind of pro-innovation ecosystem really looked like and what were some of the key pieces to that ecosystem and what we were missing in the social impact ecosystem. And, you know, that's what we set out to do and that's what we do at Start Some Good is to try and fill that gap, connecting kind of grassroots innovation with capital and inspiring more people to go on the journey of making a difference for their communities. All right. So you've taken the best of what the world has to offer, brought it back to Sydney or Australia, and now you're uh, now you're driving these social impact projects to success? We're not driving. I mean, I think, you know, you can think of us as the... I was going to say the petrol, um, which is maybe not the right analogy. The electricity, <laughs> the electricity. These sure. are very modern, modern cars on, on the road. But no, we're not driving out. Our, our role is to equip social entrepreneurs to succeed. And so that means both providing the the technical tools and infrastructure, such as through the startsomegood.com platform, but also really importantly, uh, you know, our approach has been to to pair that with the coaching and teaching and you know, and actually kind of supporting people on the emotional journey as well. That, that, you know, tools are all very well, but to empower people with those tools, you have to give them the confidence to use them successfully. Um, not just the confidence, but the actual skills to use them successfully. And, and most platforms don't do that. You know, most, most online fundraising is very sink or swim, and the majority of people, too many people, sink. And, and partly, I think, why, why that matters so much, I think, when it comes to social change is I truly believe that many of the best innovations for social impact come from people with a lived experience of various issues. But so many of the people who are living the challenges of the world today don't necessarily come, you know, bundled with the perfect marketing skills, fundraising experience, pitching, storytelling, knowing who to ask, the right kinds of connections that can help people get projects off the ground. And so if you're serious about, as we are, our mission is to increase the pace of innovation for social change. If you're serious about that, you need to think about how to build those pathways that help more diverse people who maybe don't have all the, ne all the necessary skills and experience yet, as I didn't, you and know, um, to help them get off, you know, get their ideas off the ground and know how to move forward. And is that how you started Start Some Good or was it a slightly different form and you've kind of come to this, uh, I guess, service over time? No, it's the exact same, I guess, orientation and strategy. We do a lot of new things now. But right from day one with startsomegood.com, so we began as just a crowdfunding platform and now we also run a social enterprise design program. We run an annual event, the Starting Good Virtual Summer, which is the world's biggest online gathering of early stage and aspiring social entrepreneurs. We do a lot. We run six to eight accelerators a year on behalf of partners across uh, corporate foundations and government. We do a bit of consulting, capacity building and all sorts of stuff now. But even when we were just the crowdfunding platform, we had a really unusually kind of high-touch approach to crowdfunding, like right from day one, and it's never changed. Every single project that's drafted on our site gets paired with a crowdfunding coach on our team who will provide them with real individual human attention to give them feedback, answer questions, and, you know, hopefully encourage them to move forward but also equip them to do so successfully. It's been really interesting seeing the rise of crowdfunding and almost that responsibility for projects succeeding handed over to the community you know it's up to you guys to help each other out but I mean that's always been where the responsibility is has you know ha has laid I mean the whole point of crowdfunding in a way is to go is to help people around some of the existing gatekeepers and so you know we, what we've had traditionally is a world with you know 
a, a small number of highly influential people who control the capital in the you know in the in the sector, whether that's kind of government departments, uh, big foundations, corporates, people who work for high net worth individuals, etc. Um, and so it's always someone's response. You know, we always need someone, I guess, to to come with us on the journey to back us. If we had enough money ourselves, we wouldn't be talking about fundraising at all. We'd just be talking about spending our money. <laughs> so by definition, you know, those of us who need to fundraise don't have the personal wealth to just pay for the projects that we want to see. Um, and so I guess our choice then is whether we orient around those gatekeepers or whether we orient around everyone else. Um, and there's certainly plenty of opportunities to orient around those gatekeepers and they haven't gone anywhere. They're still actually really important in the ecosystem. Part of the challenge is that they tend to be fairly risk-averse actors. One of the, one of the kind of realizations um, I had when in San Francisco was the different roles play, the, the, you know, how, kind of how important the different roles different types of investors play are, and in particular the role of the angel investor in the kind of commercial startup sector. Sure. And so the angel investor, I'm sure your listeners are familiar, but you know, broadly kind of startup investment is two main buckets of players, angel investors and, and venture capitalists, VCs. Angel investors are generally investing their own money and they're doing so at a very, at, 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 at a, at a very early stage, which is to say very risky. Um, but because they're mostly investing their own money, they don't have to justify those decisions to anyone. They get to do what they want to do. They get to back the things that they're excited about. They get to be, they get to be led by their passions. They get to be led by their optimism and hope for the future. They get to just, let's see what happens. And then there's another group of investors, venture capitalists, who wait until a slightly later stage when they can actually look at data. It's not just gut instinct. It's not just passion. It's not just hope. It's actually, hey, check out these numbers. They stack up. I can, we can justify an investment. And part of that is, that part of the dynamic there is they have to justify those decisions to other people. Venture capitalists invest other people's money, not their own. And what I realized was that for, in terms of kind of social impact financing in general, governments, foundations, corporates, etc., is we have a, a world of all VCs and no angels. Everyone wants to make sensible decisions. Everyone therefore wants to, wants to be able to justify their decisions to their wider stakeholders. And this is, I'm not criticizing this, this is just how it is, and probably even how it should be for a lot of these. You know, governments do have to justify their decisions. But sadly, you know, in Australia, we actually have a, a terribly risk-averse culture, which is kind of the, the meta <laughs> context for all of this. Yeah. Um, that we're not very forgiving of things that don't work out the way they're intended. We, we, we come down harshly on nonprofits who are seen to be not quite efficient enough in pursuing their goal. We come down very harshly on governments who, you know, attempt to do something significant and fall short. Um, and so people want to kind of, people want to get it right and they want to make smart decisions based on data. But how do we get that data for genuinely innovative ideas? In the commercial startup world, that's the role angel investors play is that they fund uninvestable companies, literally no evidence of investability, not, nothing that you would stack up in the normal sense and say, this is what investability looks like. But it, the the thing so many people don't realize about investability is you almost always need to raise investment in order to get to investability. You, know, you don't get investment after you become investable. You need investment to become investable, which is a tricky little paradox to overcome. And it's the angel investors who kind of, you know, are able to, 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 to make that work in the startup world because they take those high-risk bets, understanding that it's a, entirely a kind of boom-bust outcome. That they, and they, they do so understanding that most will f that they that they no one is smart enough to predict the future accurately when you're dealing with stuff that that's early that is so early stage, and genuine innovation and so they expect about ninety percent of those investments to fail, but the hope is you know maybe nine percent nine of them 
might, you know, break even. And then the hope is that one of them is a Facebook, an Uber, an Airbnb, etc. And I think we need to take a, a similar sort of courageous approach to supporting social innovation as well. But we're not very good at doing that. And, and I think that's the role that crowdfunding is now playing in the sector, is essentially as the source of that angel-style investment, people putting their own money into exciting projects, not driven by a set of metrics or impact measures that stack up, but rather driven by optimism and hope and courage around what you know around the future that they want to see and the future that they're prepared to invest in. And one of the things crowdfunding does very simply is break that down to our individually acceptable level. You can be a lot riskier with twenty dollars than with two thousand dollars than with two hundred thousand dollars. And so, when you no longer require one person to take the entire risk of the project by writing that big check and funding the whole thing, if you can kind of, you know, share that risk across several hundred or even thousands of supporters, it becomes a lot easier for each of us individually to say, yeah, I'd love to see if that could work. Let's find out. And who are these angel investors, these micro angel investors? They're not a category. So it is a, it, in that sense, it is quite different from, I guess, in the commercial uh, startup world where there are people who are proactively looking for deals at, at this risk profile, etc. That is that's simply not the dynamic when it comes to social impact fundraising. So every who are they? They're they're completely individual. They're completely unique to every project. Every pro, there is, there isn't a community of early stage supporters out there. There's only your community, and you have to build it in the way that you would build any community by being conscious of of who it's for, by being um, uh, proactive in, in trying to you know reach out to the people for whom it is for and to share that story with them and then to try and support their participation and their involvement in the long term maintaining that community and that relationship servicing you know that community that's the only way to really raise money and that you know why so many crowdfunding platforms fall short is that people think it is more like renting a house on Airbnb whereby there is simply demand that is constantly driven through the platform um, but in general, very few people wake up in the morning and and kind of proactively go looking for things to give money to. It's quite different than when you have a trip planned. You're pretty you're pretty committed to the idea that you're going to have a bed to sleep on. You know, if you're having if you're having <laughs> yeah. a weekend away in Melbourne, I bet you, no matter how disorganised you are, you're going to organise some accommodation. I bet you will, because we're very motivated to not be homeless when we visit a new city. No one is like people just aren't that motivated and can't be expected to be that motivated to constantly proactively go seeking abstract things they haven't yet heard of in order to fund them. So yeah. how do you awaken this crowd of people? Well, you have to you have to find them. So one of the key concepts that we teach people is that crowdfunding is not about converting. It's not about awakening people. It's about convening. There are already people out there who are awakened to whatever it is that you are awakened to. I bet you that you're not like the one human on earth passionate about your particular issue. I think if there's one thing the internet has taught us is that none of us are so unique, actually. None of us are so weird. We might just be underrepresented in the local, in the local context. Yeah. You know, we're simply... No, no, one's, no one's weird. They're just under-indexed um, in, their, in, in their local community. But there are... Any, if the, you know, I, I guarantee you, if you're passionate about something, there are other people out there. There may be slightly more or slightly less, depending on the nature of the issue. Yeah. Um, but the job of crowdfunding is not, is not to take on the challenge of getting everyone to suddenly realise how important your issue is. That is important work and that may indeed even be the, 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 the kind of job of the project for which you are crowdfunding. But it's not the job of the crowdfunding campaign. The job of the crowdfunding campaign is community building. And the best way to build, build a community 
is to actually respond to the desires people know they have and to provide them with a way to actualize those desires. And that's true whether it's a product or it's a social impact. That's really interesting because obviously we know that these movements erupt when they tap into that, I guess, un those underlying value sets or underlying anxieties or desires for action. Yeah. Um, so can you give us an example of a project that has really tapped into that underlying community value or convened a group of people in an interesting or impactful way? Yeah, I mean, every project does that in their own way. Yeah, I mean, that, that is literally what crowdfunding is. There's no crowdfunding campaign that doesn't do that because that's, that's, that's just literally the definition of the thing that we're, di we're discussing. And so what, you know, what I think is interesting, though, is that it's a way of communities to express values or to affect change that is currently kind of counter to perhaps what's happening at the political level. Um, you know, when you, and, and I th what, what I think is really inspiring, you know, I grew up in a political household and I think for a long time I thought the way that you create change is that you need to be able to pressure politicians to do the right thing. And that was, I had this very kind of instrumentalist, politics-based kind of conception of what it meant to make a difference in the world. You know, it was about going to protests and uh, signing petitions and um, being a political campaigner or a political organiser. Um, and all of that's super important, of course. Um, but I think that there's, you know, what I've realised and I think has helped sustain me, I think if I was only dependent on a view that the only government, there are things that only government can do. Like, no, you know, an NGO can't put a price on carbon. Yeah. You know, only government can do that. So only government can fundamentally change the rules of the game and we need to fundamentally change the rules of the game. So while we're working on that, though, so it's not about doing this instead of that, but while we're working on that, what else can we do right now? to make a difference on the things we care about. And I think a great example of that would be, for instance, the food justice truck, which was um, launched by the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in Melbourne a couple of years ago, one of our most successful ever Australian campaigns. And so the, you know, what you could see there is a community of people who wanted Melbourne to be more, more welcoming to asylum seekers and refugees, um, who understood the incredible challenges that they go through at the moment. Now, on the one hand, yes, we do need to change policy to create a more welcoming country. But also, for the people who are already here, how can we be a more welcoming community? And I think there's a, obviously a level uh, that, that doesn't require policy, it just, it just requires coordinated action. Um, and crowdfunding has provided that opportunity for people to coordinate their action in a way that focuses resources and gets things done. And so the Food Justice Truck provides an 80% discount to asylum seekers and, um, and, and, and refugees. In Melbourne, while you know, while selling it at commercial rates, you know, healthy, locally grown, with, you know, enti food entirely grown within the Melbourne catchment, to everyone else, um, and so I think that's a great example of you know, a thousand people is not a lot of signatures on a on a petition. It's probably not going to actually change policy in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, hopefully, it can be part of you know a bigger movement that does ultimately shift the political conditions around the issue. But in the meanwhile, what can we do right now to make Melbourne more welcoming? Um, or what can we do right now to serve, you know, another great example is a, a project called Girl Academy, which was initiated by the Cape York Indigenous community. It's a culturally specific school that supports Indigenous teenage mothers to finish their high school education. Um, they'd spent a couple of years writing grant applications for that and, and not receiving it, you know, relying on the gatekeepers, relying on people outside their community, relying on people who, you know, for whatever reason, um, weren't willing to meet them halfway and, and to support that. And then they, you know, somewhat perhaps even in desperation or as a last resort, put it 
up on our platform and successfully raise the funds they need from a couple of hundred supporters. It doesn't take millions usually. Yeah. Um, and what's what's cool about that is not just that the project happened rather than didn't happen, but actually the whole way through which it happened is so much more empowering, I think, for that community. If we're talking about kind of so, you know sovereignty and self-determination and a community knowing that they have the capacity to create a better future for themselves, which pathway is like more congruent with that goal? The the version where you write grant applications and to the powers that be and they mostly say no, or the version where you build a community of passionate supporters who love what you're doing and are, and are, you know, are willing to back you or on your side. So that's a really interesting story because obviously there comes a point in time where you know more funds are required. Is there, I guess, uh, a way for people who are running a social enterprise or looking to fund a project, is there a point where they should be able to recognise this is where we need to go and crowdfund? I mean, I think you can crowdfund at all different points because, again, I need to keep coming back to the crowdfunding is not... The best way to think about crowdfunding is, is, is kind of... I think people think about crowdfunding as being kind of a different... a different dynamic in terms of the human interconnections that are taking place. But you should think of it as just a different delivery mechanism. It's not fundamentally so different from doing direct mail fundraising... Mm-hmm. or from employing someone in a koala suit or from, you know, putting an ad on TV. Um, in every case, you need to write, you know, you, you need to realise that your job is to craft a really compelling story and then to get that story to the right people. So, you know, you're in a fortunate position where you can afford a TV ad, but of course you'll think really carefully about which show do I want to a- advertise on because that will be the audience I speak to. I think the way people talk about crowdfunding often is as if crowdfunding is the audience. Yeah. It'd be like saying like we're, we're advertising on TV but having no viewpoint as to which show is the right place to be. just Or doing direct mail but just writing to addresses, at, choosing a thousand addresses at random out of the address book, yeah. which kids used to be a big book that had people's addresses <laughs> written in it, if you can believe that. Um, uh, you know, and because... And so... The, the key question is not really the delivery mechanism. You know, the delivery mechanism is just the how. And it's a really awesome, powerful how. It's cheap, it's effective, it has incredible reach. It, 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 it kind of syncs with the way in which ideas travel and people communicate today, which is through social media and social connections and so on. But to leverage that, you need to have a, you need to have a lot of focus on who, who is it for? Who is your community? What is the community that you're trying to build? Um, and so not thinking that the community is start some good users, Kickstarter users, tough users or whatever, because that's those are the people who sadly fail. And the people usually who think that that they're kind of in some ways that there's and it would be so nice if this was the case, if they were kind of meritocratic. Yeah. The best ideas will get funded, provided that they're kind of listed somewhere. Um, but it's not the best ideas, it's the best community building efforts. And that's linked to the quality of the idea, but not, it's not directly, you know, it's not the same. It's correlated, um, but it's not, it's, it's not kind of causational on its own. Um, I and actually so th- uh, yeah. crowdfunded successfully and unsuccessfully a few years ago. And what was really interesting is the first time around, we were sort of speaking to mates, trying to build a Facebook group. Mm. Didn't really get that far. When we launched, made a little bit of money, but they talk about that kind of there's a 20% or 40% before yeah. which no one will, mm-hmm. who doesn't know, will back you. Yeah. And even though we ended up getting covered in the press all around the world, but because we hadn't kind of um, built enough of a 
base of supporters, then it yeah. all kind of, you know, lots of clicks, but yeah. no backers. Totally. And that's and that's that's what you'd expect. You know, that's how we behave in most things in the world. You know, if you if you're hungry and there's two restaurants and one of them is empty and the other is full, I guarantee you you're gonna go line up at the full one, like not like ninety nine times out of a hundred. Um, even though you could get served quicker. Yeah. In the empty one. But having never been in either restaurant, you will make the very rational, you know, and, and understandable instinctual decision that these people, like enough people here must must know which of these is better and everyone seems to be choosing this one, not that one. Or to give another really simple example, you know, you never see a tip jar empty. Yeah. There's a reason that, that when cafes set up in the morning, they don't just put an empty tip jar and watch it fill up over the course of the day because no one wants to be the first person to tip. An empty tip jar says people, here, people around here don't tip. And if people around here don't tip, why would you tip? Yeah. You know, if you see a busker set up in the morning, the first thing they do is put their own money in their hat. So people like to be part of communities. People like to be part of, you know, movements, to your point. And so that's the, you know, the tricky thing about orchestrating a movement in some ways is needing that first group um, because people want to be part of the movement, but who are the people who are going to join the movement when it's not yet a movement? It's that classic video of the dude dancing at Sasquatch. You know, you like there's lots of people out there who, you know, are willing to be the the, the the crazy dancing guy, and that's awesome. You know, willing to start something, are willing to start sharing their idea. But who's going to be that first follower, second, third, and suddenly it's a party? And lots of people want to be part of the party, um, but getting to that point is crucial. And so even when you are focusing on that wider market, so to come back to your question about the right stage, um, one of the stages people often do crowdfund out is at a family is is what in the startup world they call the the three Fs, family, friends, and fools. Around <laughs> often the very first money into a startup, even before the angel investor. Yeah. Um. You know the very the very first little bit of money we got to start some good was um from you know my co-founder Alex and my both our dads, um our investors in the company and put a little bit of money in it and we we are very privileged and very fortunate to be in the position where our parents could back us in that way. Um. A lot of people don't have that, and so they have to try and engineer something that using crowdfunding. But crowdfunding can be the way you do that. But it's but you need to be conscious that that's what you're doing. That right now I'm raising money from leveraging my networks, my personal credibility, because my idea has no credibility yet. My enterprise has no credibility, so I have to use the credibility I have. And where do I have it? I have it through these personal relationships. So that's where I'm raising money from right now. Will my community back me? And then at the next stage, you might be ready to actually have enough credibility. Like your idea, you know, now you're, you know, you have an idea for a social enterprise T-shirt company, but it's just an idea at this point. Well, the only people who are going to back you are people who know you. No one else is going to back your idea for a T-shirt company. But if thanks to the support, you know, so you could crowdfund at that stage and get, you know, 5,000, it'll depend, of course, on the nature of your networks and so on, but get a little bit of money. And then six months later, that money has allowed you to uh, recruit some amazing graphic designers and come up with some, like, kick-ass actual designs of a social enterprise all set to line up some, you know, you're giving 50% of profits to uh, Indigenous youth education. You've lined up a couple of key partners to who are going to receive those funds and implement and endorse what you're doing. You've been through a, a you know, a bit of a startup accelerator or, or a course and, you know, you've, cre you've, you've been able to invest in a good video and so on. And now you're ready to actually offer, now you're able to have credibility on the idea or rather the enterprise. Good, good graphic design creates credibility. Endorsement creates credibility. Um, indicating that you've put the hard yards in and gone through a program creates credibility as, as well as wider networks with 
people in that program, mentors, other participants, etc. So now you might be crowdfunding in a di very different style, testing your product. You know, not asking people, can you please support me to launch a t-shirt company, but you'll be using crowdfunding to launch the t-shirt company. And this is the point I think a lot of people get wrong because they raise money to launch something when in fact they should be launching the thing. Yeah. Like the only people who are going to like generally in like fund you to launch something will be people who know you. And what they, what they care about is the journey you're on. This is your dream. This is really important to you. And they care about you, therefore they care about the things that are important to you. But for the average person on the street, your idea to launch something is completely irrelevant. Get back to me when you're launching it. Yeah, like true. that's interesting idea, mate. Can't wait to see the T-shirts. Yeah. But why you'd expect me to like invest in this abstract idea at that early point, it doesn't make any sense. It's probably not what you, the listener, would do in most instances. And so one of the really important stress tests that I'm always like that maybe not enough people do is just to go, would I ever do that? This thing that I'm expecting other people to do, can I think of a time I myself have done that? <laughs> Because yeah. often the answer is no, you haven't done that, no one does that. Like yeah. it's just not a, it's not a normal thing to do. But to check out a new, a, a, a new launching social enterprise t-shirt company, to have a look at the designs and if, and if you like the design to decide to buy a t-shirt, that's also a completely natural thing that you probably have done some version of that. And so I just think, you know, a lot of it's just kind of not expecting magic to happen. Yeah. And I think people do have, we do see some kind of crazy viral outcomes and so on with crowdfunding. And so I think people do get a bit wrapped up sometimes that, I want that magic thing to happen. And, and generally just try not to have magic elements in your plan. <laughs> try to have <laughs> like my, 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 my one weird trick <laughs> for success in most things is not to have, you know, not to have magic as a key step. Um, and virality is, by the way, essentially a synonym for magic in the online yeah. marketing world. If you're requiring things to go viral, you're literally, you've literally got just magic as a key stage in your plan. Um, because almost nothing goes viral. You can think of it as nothing. We notice the ones that do, but they're literally one out of hundreds of millions of whatever's videos uploaded to YouTube and a couple go crazily viral each year or whatever. And so you could round that, if you're going to round that to the nearest one millionth of a percentage, you'd round it to zero still. Yeah. You can't rely on things that happen. That's like you, you buy, buy a lottery ticket. That's literally a buying a lottery ticket as a, as a, as a, a strategy to fundraise. So don't do that. Instead, what you can do is think about how people, you know, how you behave, how your market behaves, and just treat it like a normal marketing exercise. Like you need to know who your target market is. You need to really map how you're going to reach them. You need to, of course, design the right kind of story to appeal to them. You need, you need it to be very clear on your value proposition. And if you're doing a social enterprise, you need double clarity on both your, your value kind of product or service value prop as well as your impact, you know, proposition, theory yeah. of change. Um, and... When you've got all those pieces in place, then there's a tactical decision as to which set of tools or which approach is most appropriate to me. Do I want to do direct mail? Do I want to pitch to professional investors? Do I want to write grant applications? Do I want to crowdfund? Um, to succeed at any of those, you'll still need all those core pieces. None of them are magic. They rest on the power of your story, the confidence of your delivery, the hard work you're prepared to put in, and your ability to signal credibility in a variety of ways. Um, and why I think you might choose crowdfunding at that point is it's is, is exactly because if you succeed, you haven't just got money, you've got a community. And commun I think in many ways social capital is more powerful than financial capital. Social capital is a renewable source of financial <laughs> yeah. capital, whereas any amount of financial capital you raise is going to be spent. By definition, it doesn't renew itself that necessarily. You, you hope it does. You obviously spend it and hope it produces. But it'll be, you know, it'll, it'll be gone and you'll need to make more. Yeah. Whereas... You know, powerful social capital 
if kind of fostered right, is something that can carry you forward a very long way? I think it's it's a really interesting point to make because obviously um, when we're in this world, it's very difficult to see outside, which I suppose is the role you and your team play is having mm. that outsider's point of view and saying, come on, mate, no one no one cares about your story. Work on the product. <laughs> we're trying to say it nice than that. Yeah, I'm, yeah, sure, yeah, I'm yeah. sure you do. But. <laughs> yeah, actually, people do really care about your story, but yeah, you gotta, it's got to be the right kind of story for the right kind of listener. Um, but just thinking about that kind of the, I suppose, the renewable community in a way, something that I've heard a little bit from different people is what can people do without actually doing anything, you know? And so when you're looking to build a movement, I think this is an interesting space to play because if I can donate $20 and feel like I'm part of this bigger social cause, and that's a really accessible way for me yeah. within my own life to start feeling like I'm part of this. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. And, and why I think crowdfunding does that so well, I think one of the kind of, one of the reasons in a way to choose crowdfunding versus other crowdfunding, uh, other fundraising methods, because I always ask people, why do you want to crowdfund? And they usually say, because I need money. But I'm like, <laughs> no, no, that's why you want to fundraise. But why do you want to crowdfund? Because crowdfund is a, a method of fundraising. And so you, at this point, you should be comparing it to why, why crowdfunding versus grants, so, you know, pitching to a sophisticated investors, trying to get key clients, or a variety of other ways to generate money. Um, and one of the reasons I think it is really strategic is because it has, I think it is uniquely good, kind of the USP in a way of crowdfunding is it's uniquely good at, at converting donors to advocates. And so we think of giving money often as being kind of one of the most significant things you can do, because like, you know, money's precious. And, but actually endorsement is more precious. Um, that, you know, often people will chip into, you know, 20, 30, 40 causes appeals, charities a year, but they're not going to turn around and advocate to their friends 20 or 30 or 40 times. Yeah. That's too many. Everyone kind of instinctively feels, can't do that that often. And, you know, I feel this very strongly. I probably give to like 100 different things a year between all the different people I meet and crowdfunding campaigns, of course, that I'm thrilled to have on our site especially. Um, but I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of turning around and twice a week telling my friends to... <laughs> to invest alongside me, yeah. you know, I, my vo kind of, the, my, my, they, they drain it out in a way, it become like two, uh, it's Tom again doing, you know. Um, instead I save it uh, for maybe just half a dozen or so times a year where I take that extra step and I don't just chip in myself and go, cool, I'm done, off you go, good luck. I go, no, this has to succeed. I am not going to let this fail. I want to be part of helping this succeed. And I think what crowdfunding, crowdfunding is really good at getting more people to take that step. And that's because baked into the rules of the game, particularly the way we crowdfund, so without getting too in the weeds about the whole thing, there's kind of two different approaches to crowdfunding, one called keep what you raise or sometimes flexible funding and one yeah. called all or nothing or sometimes fixed funding or what we call the tipping point, which is to say there's a line in the sand that you have to reach in before uh, you can actually kind of receive the funds. Everything up until that point is conditional on you reaching that point. A big part of the reason so much stuff fails is that people choose the wrong model. Um, keep what you raise is people think about it in terms of do I want to keep what I raise or do I want to not keep what I raise, which is which is kind of, you know, feels like it has a very obvious answer. Of course, <laughs> you'd rather keep what you raise. Yeah. But it's completely the wrong question. The question is what will make it easier or harder to raise? And in general, people hate keep what you raise on a donor level. Fundraisers love it because they feel like at least they have the certainty that I'll raise something. But actually... That's a false certainty because that's a bad that's a fault that's a bad promise. The, 
the pro- what that becomes as a promise is I may or may not reach my goal. I may or may not be able to follow through on anything I've told you. Yeah. But I'm going to keep your money irrespective. How about it? Will you invest in me? Yeah. People are like, holy hell, man. I've only just met you. Like it'd be one thing if you're my best mate. Yeah, sure. You know, what it, I, I trust you that much. It requires a very large amount of credibility. Um, so we strongly recommend and the model that we use is, is some sort of a key, an all or nothing mechanism where you, buy, you make a clear commitment around here's what I'm trying to do, here's how much I need, I need your support but I'll only take your money if, if I can follow through. A lot of people are like, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm under those plans. Because then you only have to ask yourself, do I want it to happen? In Keep What You Raise, you have to ask yourself, are they going to make it? Yeah. And what are they going to do with my money if they don't make it? And all those questions are very uninspiring and likely to distract you from how great the project is and how... And whereas with Keep What You Raise, you can keep people focused on, do you want it to happen? It's on me, I have to, help. I have to make the goal. But then, of course, if you want it to happen... That's where you realize, well, gosh, I've given $20, but that doesn't mean anything if they don't reach that goal. Yeah. So, now, so it's not enough that I just chip in. I have to help them reach this goal. And so it kind of reframes the challenge in a way from not just this personal decision, do I contribute or not? Okay, I've contributed, I'm done. Instead it becomes a, will you help it reach the goal? If you really want it to happen, just chipping in is not enough. You need to rally around it in a way. And that means that when it does succeed, people feel this sense that they were part of the success. It feels like a we did it. Not just a you did it, but we did this. Look what we did. Look what I was part of. Look at, you know, look at the other people around me. And that's a really powerful feeling. It's the best feeling, actually. That feeling of being part of a group of people who are capable of doing things. And that's an amazing uh, point to get to when you're so early in that journey of actually making a change. If you can unite people early on then it's going to make it much easier to roll on right exactly and it's equally powerful whether you're a kind of community organization or nonprofit, or if you're a social enterprise when people feel like we helped launch this company you know i've, I've met people who you know i remember a couple of years ago in melbourne i spoke at an event and this guy came up to me afterwards and he was, it was just raving about the watch on his wrist because it was it had been a, a crowdfunding campaign he'd supported to you know to bring Swiss style watch manufacturing to inner city Melbourne, like the most hipster thing ever. <laughs> but you'd, you would literally have thought, I, I figured out that he wasn't, but you would literally have thought that he was a co founder of that company, that he had brought Swiss style watch manufacturing to inner city Melbourne, because in a way he was. And that's, you, you, you wouldn't get that feeling if he just walked into a shop and bought that product, even from a social enterprise. He might feel good about the fact that he knows that his purchase contributes to. You know, I don't know if it's buy one, give one model, give a watch to someone who needs one, who does <laughs> some, someone, in, someone who's under-resourced in timekeeping in the future, or whatever the case might be. That's one thing. But that's still just a, I did that. You know, I bought this watch and that enabled someone else to get a watch. It's still kind of an I story. Yeah. Whereas by supporting something at that crucial early stage that helps it get across the line from not existing to existing, there's nothing like that moment of creation in a way, that moment of launch. And to feel part of that is to really feel like you did this did this bigger thing, um, that you helped make this thing happen. And, of course, that kind of feeling, that guy's going to wa- buy watches from that company for the rest of time. You know, that, that, cause that, that feeling, he's going to give other people their watches for presents. He's going to go to dinner parties and talk to people about his watch just as he was talking to me about his watch. So it carries over into these things that are very powerful for a social enterprise in terms of that, you know, that, that early adopter community, I guess, and... That's um, such an interesting, yeah. I guess, journey to take people on where first here's a story that you can tell, mm-hmm. right? Now here's a proof point that you can share and then here's the thing that I can keep engaging in. That's almost the, if we talk about a, uh, a, a funnel for 
acquisition, right? That's a perfect way to get people yeah. on board and engaged. Yeah. So to come right back, I think it's a bit of very long answer in some ways to your question, but it is so much the crucial question in terms of what stage. Part of it should be, are you ready to do that? Like asking yourself honestly, am I ready to launch? Am I ready to show people my work? Am I ready to reassure that you know, is it ready to be sold? Um, and so on. And, and you know, do, do, how, do I have clarity? Have I figured out who my target market is? If not, there's probably work you need to do before launch. Launch can be the testing of that, of course. I think a, a big part of how we, I guess, pitch crowdfunding is not just as a source of financial capital, but a source of validation. That if you can get, if you can prove that people want what you have to offer, it becomes a lot easier to get in with those other sources of capital. It becomes a lot easier to pitch to an investor when you can prove that you have any amount of customers who are willing to pay X dollars for your Y product or service. Um, any amount of evidence is going to be really powerful versus no evidence. And I think that that's a, that's a big role that crowdfunding is playing now. Tom, we are going to have to leave it there. But this has been super insightful. I think that regardless of whether you're starting a social enterprise or just trying to get a project or a platform funded for your movement, uh, these are fundamentals that anyone can apply. And I think just to underline it, convening, you know, getting that community together and building them before you ask for anything that credibility making sure that people can see what you're offering and understand it see the value see that other people have endorsed this and then converting i think is another really interesting yeah i'm not sure if you plan to have three c's when you came into the room but yeah, it was pretty we have, sharp yeah we have a lot of c's actually <laughs> we, we, have a, we have a whole formula for success crowdfunding which is five c's which uh is only partially overlapping with your list there's just an amazing amount of great c words <laughs> in the world um to be honest, if anyone does want to, if I could just share a, a link, if someone wants to go kind of even deeper into that 5Cs formula and, and how to crowdfund, how to build community online, um, you can find all of our resources and coaching programs and everything you need at startsomegood.com academy. Great. And I think just to go there and start looking at the different kinds of projects that are out there is, a, you know, is going to be really valuable for working out what you can, could, should do. Uh, Tom, thank you very much for uh, coming into this tiny, smoky little room this morning. Uh, guys, if you've enjoyed the episode, please share it with someone out there that you think is ready to take that next step to start to scale up their idea, build their social enterprise, or really just bring impact into the world in a bigger way. Um, if you want to hear more about Start Some Good, I'll put the link in the show notes. Otherwise, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Rich Brophy. This has been How to Start a Riot. Thank you.